Welcome to the Politics of Truth with me, Bob Crawford. This program is brought to you by Osiris, a network run by music fans for music fans. The goal of this weekly program is to empower our listeners with the information they need to make informed decisions as they follow and vote in the 2020 elections, be it the state primaries, caucuses, or the general election in November. Hey, everybody. I know we don't get out like we used to, but I still like to have a close shave. I mean, I'm in this band with these guys. They're famous for their beards. And I promise you, I could beat them in a beard growing contest, hands down, if I wanted to, but I don't because I don't like having facial hair. Now, I've tried every razor blade on the market, and I finally found the best one for me, and I think it'd be great for you as well. It's called Harry's Razor Blades. Have you heard of these? I'll tell you, the blade itself gives me the cleanest, closest shave I've ever had. They have a shave gel that smells really, really nice. My wife loves it. But what I love about the razor blade, in addition to those things, that it's a weighted handle. I love a weighted handle. Guys, if you uh, shave with a razor, if you don't do the electric razor thing, if you're like me, you like it old school, a nice weighted handle feels really good and it helps you get the best shave you can. Another thing that's great about Harry's is they ship the razor blades right to your door. So I think it comes out to like $2 a blade. It's really affordable. They bought their own German blade making factory. They keep costs down, but yet high quality. All purchases are 100% quality guarantee. If you don't like your shave, let them know. They'll give you a full refund. 1% of proceeds are set aside for nonprofit organizations devoted to helping provide access to better health care for men and veterans. And right now, for a limited time, listeners of my show can redeem their Harry's trial set at harrys.com slash politics. You'll get a weighted ergonomic handle for a firm grip, five-blade razor with a lubricating strip and trimmer blade, rich lathering shave gel and aloe to keep your skin hydrated, and a travel blade cover to keep your razor dry and easy to grab on the go when we finally get on the go again. Go to harrys.com slash politics to start shaving better today. As the coronavirus crisis continues to keep most Americans isolated at home, it's struggled to find balance between following the massive global scale of a pandemic and the deeply personal challenges facing every individual and family. Each new day brings important public health and policy developments that require us all to act together and really come to terms with the crucial questions about how we live as a society. At the same time, Endless confinement at home with ourselves and our families during a moment of extreme stress can shine a spotlight on some of our own personal vulnerabilities that require attention and care. Balancing the deeply personal and massively global nature of this moment hasn't been easy for me, and I imagine it hasn't been easy for anyone. This week, I spoke with two friends, one from the world of politics and the other from my life as a musician, about the practical and personal dimensions of this crisis. First is Chris Freights, veteran CNN reporter and host of Politics Inside Out on Sirius XM, who in 2016 founded Storyline, which tells the stories of people and organizations whose perspectives fall through the cracks of large media companies. Chris and I discuss how and whether to cover the daily White House COVID briefings, how Joe Biden can run an effective campaign in a time without rallies and door knockers to get out the vote, 
who he might select as his vice presidential running mate, and Chris's own challenges of running a small business during an economic crisis. Please check out Storyline's work and Politics Inside Out, both of which I link to the show notes. Next, I'll speak to my old friend, singer-songwriter Langhorn Slim, who just played a show with me and the Avett Brothers in the Dominican Republic in early March, days before the world changed. Me and Slim are both from the Delaware Valley. Him from Bucks County outside Philadelphia, me from South Jersey. Now he lives in Nashville, and I live in North Carolina. He returned home from the Dominican Republic just hours before a devastating tornado ravaged his neighborhood. And then, just a week later, the COVID lockout began. He's an unusually thoughtful and candid guy, and we dig into the personal difficulties that for so many are compounded by the crisis, whether it's addiction, mental health, lost loved ones, and the search for meaning. We also pay tribute to the legendary Gene Shea, who passed away on Sunday from COVID-19 in his native Philadelphia. Gene was a towering figure in folk music for more than half a century, but he's also just the kindest, sweetest man you ever wanted to meet. He had amazing stories, and he was influential in the careers of Bob Dylan, Langhorn Slim, and the Avett Brothers. Chris Freights, welcome to the Politics of Truth. Hey, brothers, good to be here. I- I'm not going to lie to you, Chris. Uh, we're not doing a podcast. I just want to hang out. <laughs> I'm so starved for attention. We could just have a bull session and then put it up and people can listen to it. It's just, I think we're all a little hungry for interaction these days. We really are. And, uh, uh, you know, while we're having our bull session, why don't we talk about what is going on in the news? Because our listeners, they love music, but they also want to get just enough information from reliable sources to uh, to make informed decisions as they uh, move forward through coronavirus and through this election cycle. So let's start with the election cycle. Uh, nine weeks, this is episode nine of Politics of Truth. Nine weeks ago, I was uh, talking with Robert Costa the day after the Iowa caucuses, and the story was the Iowa Democratic Party's inability to pull off a caucus. We were coming off of impeachment and and we had this emboldened President Trump. But now the story, the storyline, as you might say, Chris, has completely shifted and we are in coronavirus. We could have never predicted that the Democratic nomination process would have wrapped up so quickly. Um, what does Joe Biden need to do now that he is the uh, apparent a challenger to uh, Donald Trump for the 2020 election. Yeah, I mean, as you point out, this is really, really uncharted territory for both parties uh, going into this general election. And what's interesting to me is we've not seen a Democratic Party uh, this solidified behind a presumptive nominee this early uh, since John Kerry. Uh, and so it's been a very long time. What is that? 15, 16 years, right? Uh, in 2004. So uh, it's been a very long time since we've seen uh, the Democratic Party as kind of locked and loaded this early on in the cycle, and yet they can get almost no traction, right? Joe Biden is like the rest of us. He is stuck in his basement in Wilmington making videos and trying to break through with, here's how I would handle the coronavirus. Here's what I think the president's doing wrong. Uh, here are the, you know, the fatal mistakes. But he has no platform here, Bob. Watching. Joe Biden, you know, he's not a governor in a state that uh, is affected. He's not even in the United States Senate anymore. 
And this story is being driven by the decision makers now. And we've seen that from President Trump, whose rallies have been curtailed. So he's turned the White House briefing, which was non-existent for months. I mean, this president did so few briefings that it was historic. Neither he nor his press secretaries uh, would come out for weeks at a time. Now we see the president every day, which during a crisis is appropriate. Uh, But these are kind of two-hour-plus spectacles where he's almost doing a campaign routine and it's forced news media to decide are we going to carry this whole thing live is there news here there's misinformation mixed in there you know we, we've seen that uh, time and time again with the president pushing uh, you know different miracle cures that have turned out not to be in fact miracle cures so but the opposite right hydrochloroquine uh, uh the the study that came out by i guess the nih uh, the other day said that um not only does it not help uh people with coronavirus but because of what it does to the heart it's actually caused a few deaths that's right that's right and uh you know we're seeing the uh the fervor particularly on the right around that trying to back up the president's um assertions around what he was saying could be a miracle drug when we saw that uh, study come out that essentially says uh, it may be causing more deaths than uh, lives saved, and it was not peer-reviewed, so that's, that's important to point out. But certainly, Fox kind of quietly abandoning that position. You know, they're, they're talking heads out there. We're building it up for weeks, and now it's turned out not to be uh, the miracle cure. In fact, it, it, it may have actually been killing people. You know, we, we tend to, as Americans, say, well, politicians are so scripted and you know, they're full of baloney and, 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 you know, that can be true, but there's also a reason why politicians at that level of power are scripted because their words have power. And when you suggest that uh, hydrochloroquine uh, is going to be a lifesaver, you know, people were reaching into their uh, pantries and their garages, pulling this stuff out and taking it and dying um, because it was included in like fish cleaners. Like th- that is the reason why it, words matter. And we're seeing that again and again. So I got a little bit off track, but the point is it's uncharted territory here, Bob, when it comes to campaigning. I mean, uh, Donald Trump will continue to dominate uh, the news cycles because he's the president of the United States during a global pandemic. And that's just a fact. But wait, isn't it maybe better for Joe Biden right now? Some people are saying, where's Biden? Why won't he speak up? Where is he? He's hiding in his basement bunker studio. But isn't this election a referendum on the incumbent? And if that's the case, isn't Trump just going out day by day, building his own, the attack ads that will be used against him come September, October, November? Biden, maybe the only thing he needs to have going for him is that he's not Donald Trump. Yeah. I mean, look, that is a that you hear that time and time again. But remember that um, elections are about choice and you can't just not be the other guy. That was Hillary Clinton's campaign strategy and it didn't work. I mean, she essentially said this guy is not ready for the presidency. He's incompetent and he's a bad choice. It's obvious. So pick me. And you she did not say what you will about Donald Trump, but you knew what he was going to do. He was going to make America great again. He's going to build the wall and he was going to take on China and, uh, and immigration, right? Like you knew what he was about. If I asked you, Bob Crawford, what was Hillary Clinton's campaign? What was she going to do for people? What would you say? 
I would say, uh, what was her slogan? I can't remember her slogan, so I don't know what I would say because I can't remember um, us together. Um, point made, Chris Freights, but Joe Biden is not Hillary Clinton. And Bernie Sanders seems to be more unified behind and more supportive of Joe Biden. And I think he likes Joe Biden better. So he is going to do more to bring uh, his supporters behind Biden rather than the uh, icy relationship that uh, Hillary and Bernie had. No, I think that's I think that's right. And the question is, how much can he bring those folks? I mean, his whole organization was predicated on the fact that he was going to bring new voters into the fold that that turnout was going to propel him to the nomination that did not work so we're very much in the classic dynamics of democratic wins which is putting together the obama coalition you know he needs to be talking to them bob is my point so yes it is not altogether bad that donald trump is uh going out onto the world stage every day and failing and making promises, whether it's that we're testing when we're not, whether it's that we're going to get testing, whether it's that you know this is miraculously going to go away when it is the worst in the world. I mean, certainly, he to your point, he's building a record uh, that Democrats will be happy to run against uh, because by most measures, he is failing and the federal government is failing, and he is playing a blame game with governors instead of partnering with them in order to save American lives. On the other hand, if you're Joe Biden, you want to be telling that story. You want to be shaping it. You want to be telling it the way that you want people to hear it, not the way the president is presenting it. And it is very frustrating when you're inside a campaign when you can't get any coverage. You know, you can't you can't get any momentum because the story by definition, you know, it's I this is the first time in my lifetime, Bob, where I've seen a United States presidential contest uh, blotted out uh, by the sun of a bigger story. And there's usually never a bigger story, and a global pandemic will always be bigger. And the question is, do we start to normalize, you know, in the summer months and in the run-up to the election? That's a very short runway. We're going to have a short campaign, and it's going to be intense when it does come back around. Chris Freitz, you are Joe Biden's uh, campaign manager. What would you do in this moment to shine a light on him, to give him a platform, to make people want to know what he's saying and tune into his YouTube video clips? You know, I think uh, I, I think it's going to be very difficult for him to get any airtime. I think he'll get some, uh, but he is not a player. He's not a decision maker. And so the traditional media routes that are open uh, to the presumptive democratic and Republican nominees aren't there. This is the president's show. He's running the nation during a pandemic and that's as it should be. So I think what Joe Biden is doing, he's doing virtual fundraisers, right? Where he had a pretty good fundraising month. In fact, he had the best, I think fundraising uh, month that he has had in his campaign. He raised almost $47 million, uh, but he's still trailing uh, president Donald Trump. Uh, and that's a problem for, Biden. So I think if I'm Biden, I am trying to figure out how do I engage my donors? How do I engage my supporters? And how through targeted uh, Facebook ads, through targeted social media, do I talk about things that our voters want to hear about? How do I make that case and use this time to fundraise, to build support, to build grassroots lists, to build uh, you know text messaging lists, 
basically building out your communications virtually when November comes around, it's an open question what the polls are even going to look like. I mean, we haven't even talked about, you know, what the election might look like, how difficult it might be to go door to door if the coronavirus surges back in the fall and we find ourselves in a similar situation. So, so much of this outreach is going to have to be digital and virtual that you don't have the door knocks that you usually do to introduce the candidate to canvas real people and have those real conversations that can be game changers. So you're leaning on your influential um, voices. You know, and, and when I say that, I don't mean just national influential voices. I mean your uh, everyday Americans who have family networks and professional networks who are Joe Biden supporters. You want to be giving them things to go talk to their networks about, about why Joe Biden is the guy, because most of America has made up their mind. That's very slim, kind of undecided, low information voter is always hard to get to. And that's, that's why it's going to be so intense in the few months run up to uh, this election. Cause that's where you're going to be trying to change minds, you know, just for your listeners, right? Donald Trump won the 2016 elections in three states, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan by 80,000 votes. So basically think of a football stadium. That's what put Donald Trump into the white house. So that's the kinds of margins we're talking about. So a really good day at Lambeau Field is basically how uh, how Trump won. Well, actually, you know, no, knowing the cheeseheads, it was uh, it was about negative twenty degrees and and it was a blizzard. But you know, there were still eighty thousand people in the stadium. So one thing that Joe Biden can do is announce his cabinet early, right? And I guess we all want to know who he's going to pick as his running mate. I want to get your opinion on this because it seems to me there are two names that I hear bandied about that he has to pick one of those two people to bring in the most important part of his coalition, the part of his coalition that gave him that amazing, stunning victory in South Carolina and uh, carried him throughout the South and just unprecedented victory against uh, Swift, uh, amazing come behind against Bernie Sanders. I want to know who you think he needs to pick for his running mate. Well, let's go with what he has told us so far. He says it definitely has to be a woman. So that narrows uh, the field tremendously. He has just this week said that he thinks he'll make that choice in July. He said he's, you know, where, where he thinks he'll have it down to the one, two, or three people that he'll be considering. And when you look at that list, you know, the folks who typically come up, Elizabeth Warren, uh, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, both United States senators, and then, of course, uh, the Michigan governor, Gretchen, Gretchen Whitmer, is coming up. She had, did the State of the Union response for Democrats. She's now uh, governing in Michigan, which is the third hardest uh, location in America for coronavirus right now. Very difficult. Lots of protesters there, um, you know, from the right protesting her stay at home orders, uh, Donald Trump egging those folks on. And so, you know, I don't know who he will pick and I've not had any conversations with his people to get a sense of that. It's just, I think too early. And I think that him picking a cabinet or a vice president right now would be a terrible mistake uh, because it's going to be overshadowed and you want to get max momentum out of that moment. I mean, a vice president doesn't really, you know, necessarily bring in votes. Um, you know, we always talk about the the map and, you know, where somebody could appeal. And that's certainly a, 
a piece of it, but it's also kind of just a balancing, you know, of the ticket. And so, you know, I like uh, Kamala Harris for that. You know, I think she is a, you know, she's a smart, no nonsense prosecutor. She won statewide in the biggest state in America, California, 40 million people there. But, you know, Joe Biden's going to win California anyway. He's going to win it by a landslide. Uh, so that's why people start to talk about Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan, because that's a swing state. And, you know, she was elected statewide. Could she rub off on Biden and give him some of that mojo? Maybe. Uh, does he lose African-American voters if he puts a white woman on the ticket? Uh, probably not. I mean, he he showed that he has a tremendous loyalty built over 40 years with a relationship and then being the vice president to the first African-American president. Um, that was a big deal. And people said, I know, Joe, because being an ally isn't just... Um, you know, saying I'm with you, it is, you know, Joe Biden served as Barack Obama's right-hand man and his second in command. He never publicly questioned the president. He never undercut him. And um, people remember that. Uh, Democrats remember that. African-Americans remember that in particular because there were lots of people trying to undercut uh, President Obama. Joe Biden was not one of those people. So I don't know that he has to put an African-American uh, in the VP slot, but he has some very good choices, Bob. And I think, you know, he's a little bit spoiled for choice with some of the very impressive Democratic women who are out there and on his shortlist. I think Val Demings, I think it could be a tremendous pick. She is very impressive. She was the, uh, I guess, the first African-American female police chief of the Orlando Police Department. She serves in the Florida's 10th Congressional District, and she was an impeachment manager in the Senate trial. Uh, and if you watched any of the Senate trial, she she was just very, very impressive. Why do you say that? Why do you like uh, Congresswoman Demings? Well, I think she's charismatic. I think all the impeachment managers were strong with the facts, and and that's the first time that I came aware of her, and I just found her to be very um, convincing, very strong, and very impressive. And every time I've seen her since, you know, she was the Orlando police chief. Like, she comes off as someone um, that knows how to use her authority to get results. So she's a very confident woman, very strong woman. I think that the African-American community has um, given Joe Biden this victory. They have put him where he is today. And I think, as Doug Jones saw in Alabama in the special election against Roy Moore, it was African-American women who, who carried him over the top. And I think that to choose uh, you know, Stacey Abrams or Val Demings would be a good choice. But Val Demings, just to me, strikes me as, as being a politician that over the next 10, 15, 20 years, she'll become a household name. And I think she is a rising star in the Democratic Party. And I think that she'd be a great choice. Well, certainly Florida, key battleground, but certainly a congresswoman not known statewide, hasn't run statewide in Florida uh, that's a big state, lots of media markets. So she's going to have, uh, you know, she would be a uh, a native daughter, but she wouldn't necessarily uh, have a name recognition uh, state statewide. Whereas, you know, some of those other choices have national name recognition. And you know, I'm going to say I think she's probably a little green for it. And you want to, you don't want to make the Sarah Palin mistake, right? Where you think you got somebody who energizes the base and is. You know, kind of checks the political boxes, but doesn't necessarily have the background. Uh, you know, Kamala also law and order AG of California and, you know, showed 
her medal on the national stage, was on that debate stage with Joe Biden. This pre- vice presidential candidate is going to have to go head to head with Mike Pence. Those are things that you have to go through. There's no prep for. And when the stakes are this high, you know, I'm not sure she's quite there yet, but I certainly agree with you, Bob, that she was uh, impressive. And, you know, maybe he does pick a sleeper choice. You know, it, it is also the thing that you can't put a uh, analysis on is, you know, does uh, the vice president, former vice president, get along with that person, right? He had that job. He's interviewing somebody for the job he had, and that chemistry has to be there. And if you don't have that, then that's that's tough. That's a good point. You know, the last time you and I uh, spoke on air, I was on your show, Politics Inside Out with Chris Freights on Sirius XM. And we were talking about impeachment when this impeachment was not even real. This is before Ukraine. And I made a case, a very strong evidentiary based case for impeachment and why it would be good for Democrats. Well, Chris, impeachment has come and gone and is, I would argue, maybe forgotten by some at this point. Uh, Impeachment for the Dems going in 2020, hit or miss. So. I love this because you and I disagreed on the show, and uh, I'll see if I could find this clip. Wait, wait. Can I just say this? Wait, Chris, you cleaned my clock, okay? I'll admit it. You cleaned my clock. <laughs> I appreciated your passion. And my my argument was, look, this is a political loser for Democrats. We know how this show is going to end, and it's going to end with the president being acquitted in the Senate, and how much political juice can Democrats get out of that? is an open question and do they want to spend their time doing that or do they want to spend their time talking about things that Americans care about like healthcare and the economy and table side issues and and you made an equally uh passionate case that look you know this is history and that this president should be held to account that he had done things uh, and that there was evidence that he had done things that were unconstitutional and that there needed to be a trial and accountability because that is built into the system so that these kinds of things don't happen. And I took the cynical kind of Washington view, which was, well, if it doesn't have a political upside, then you're not going to be able to get it done. And you said it shouldn't be political. It should be evidentiary and policy-based. And you know what we, and I, and I, and I predicted that it wouldn't happen. And then of course, Ukraine happened because you know, the Mueller report came out and my thought about the Mueller report, Bob, we haven't talked about this, uh, you know, can you believe it's been a year? I think it was a year ago this week that the Mueller report dropped. I mean, it feels like it was 10 years ago. <laughs> um, when you watch that report, things dripped out over a year. I think if that report had stayed locked down tight and then came out all at once, it would have been a blockbuster. But because we had kind of heard so much of it before, uh, there wasn't as much political punch to some of those allegations. And, you know, Democrats tried that case and uh, you know, wrote up articles of impeachment and the Senate acquitted the president, just like I thought would be the case. And I don't know, you know, in a regular year without a global pandemic, you know, President Trump, after he was acquitted, saw a bit of a bump, right? Like he was feeling kind of empowered. He was starting to, you know, fire the whistleblowers who had uh, started the impeachment inquiries to begin with. He was you know, kind of riding high before this global pandemic hit. I don't know that impeachment has much pop at all in this current state where 
we're facing an unprecedented global catastrophe, but I don't know that it would have worked in the Dems' favor in any case, because certainly President Trump used it to juice his base and and took the acquittal as I did nothing wrong, and that's how he would have sold it, which was the the worry for Democrats from the start. Yeah, Chris, uh, in a way, it's it's like um, the pandemic was the only thing that could have blunted the ire of Trump and his revenge tour. Um, I mean, he would be out every week with campaign rallies. He'd be all over the country filling arenas with 20,000 people uh, just attacking and shoving the failed impeachment down the Democrats' throat. It would be the issue as we'd be moving towards the conventions this summer and then then the election uh, in the fall. I want to move real quickly to something that you're experiencing right now because you are a, a veteran journalist. You've been in the industry for over 20 years, and recently you started your own small business. First, I want you to tell us about Storyline and what you guys have been doing over there the past couple of years, and then I want you to kind of flip it and tell us about you know what it's like uh, right now in the time of COVID to, to have this business and to be conducting journalism and some of the obstacles you've had to endure recently. Thanks for that, Bob. I mean, we're we're here at Storyline. We're like many, many small businesses across the country, uh, you know, just trying to keep going in the face of uh, crazy uncertainty. And when I started Storyline after I left CNN uh, three years ago now, uh, you know, the idea was that there are so many stories out there that aren't being covered. And that, you know, I was seeing great pitches come in as a reporter that we weren't doing because they were being blotted out by, you know, Donald Trump coverage and politics and, you know, other kind of big ratings generating uh, news. And so I thought there was an opportunity to go help organizations tell their story and also go find the real people to help tell that story because I had covered a lot of public affairs, a lot of government relations. Uh, over the years here in Washington. And, you know, it always seemed to me somebody would come to you and say, Freights, you know, we got to get to write this story. You got to put this on CNN. It affects 5 million people. And you say, great. Okay. Like who's, who's the face of it? Who's an example? And I didn't have an example. And whether you're a journalist or you're a policymaker, like you need to see the faces of the people who are affected. And there was just no bandwidth to do that. So that's why we started Storyline was to go out and help organizations tell their stories through the people that they affect and serve. Uh, be it companies, nonprofits, um, other trade organizations, uh, be it, you know, they need to talk to policymakers, donors, uh, customers, whoever it is, you should be out there telling the story through the lens of those who are affected. So that's how we started. Um, it's been very uh, successful, fortunately, you know, at knock on wood, it has been an education every day as I run a business, I learn more about all that I don't know about running a business. And so uh, that has been a, a lot of fun to learn. And we've you know, kind of since branched out into earned media, helping people you know, tell their stories in the media and also media training, working with CEOs, government officials to better talk about their issues in a way that's going to resonate and really have an impact. Wait, 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 Chris, Chris, you could teach me how to speak right? I could. I could do that. I could help you interview so much better. You make me a bit better, Chris. <laughs> I can help everybody. We're here to help. So, you know, it was kind of a shock when, you know, the entire uh, United States shut down, right? Because, you know, all of my clients 
you know, folks who I was looking to do business with here in the second quarter, everybody put their budgets on hold, right? They said, Hey man, like we, we'd love to work with you, but we're going to, we, we got to take a pause and see what happens here. And, and you can't argue with that. I mean, you know, as a business owner myself, I was kind of making contingency plans. And so I would have preferred a starter downturn, if you will, a uh, recession with some training wheels. But you know, what we're looking at is, you know, the worst economic downturn since the great depression. And, and maybe worse than the great depression when it's all said and done. Don't put that out there in the world, Bob. Come on, man. <laughs> I'm trying to stay positive. And so, uh, you know, but in any case, right, I'm watching this huge economic tidal wave coming in and, you know, hitting my beachside banana stand and wondering, am I going to be able to make it work? Am I going to be able to find a piece of wood here to float on until the tide recedes and, and we can rebuild? And so I was excited to see that Congress had allocated $360 billion, which was a massive amount of money, uh, I thought, when it passed to small businesses. And I'm a small business, and you know we, we, we have a payroll, and so I could apply for uh, funds to keep my payroll going and apply that to my payroll. And I thought, that's amazing. And so I was waiting for my bank, Capital One, uh, to open up the application. And I started to notice that, you know, they weren't opening that application up, Bob. And I was like, well, I can't go somewhere else. I, I went on the Small Business Administration page and found some other lenders uh, as you know, officials in the administration recommended. I called those lenders. Nobody called me back because I wasn't a customer. And a lot of the big banks were saying, hey, you had to be a customer with us starting in February to apply for a loan. So now I'm stuck with my bank, Capital One, and, and I'm watching all this money go out the door. And it turns out the money went out the door in two weeks, Bob. Nobody from your bank called you back? Nobody called us back. In fact, the money ran out on a Thursday. I got my first email from Capital One Friday night. Oh, hey, you can apply for the Paycheck Protection Program now. After the money was gone. It was like a slap in the face. Is it time for a new bank? Indeed it is. And as soon as I could walk into a branch again, Bob, I'm changing banks. Amen. <laughs> Amen. But I did I did my reporter thing, right? Like as this was happening, I was like, how can this how can this be happening? So I called Rob Nichols, who's the president and CEO of the American Bankers Association. I had him on my Sirius XM show early on, and he said, you know, there's glitches we're trying to figure out. I, I'm sure you'll be able to apply. And when that became clear that it wasn't, I called the head of an association that represents all of the small business administration lenders in the what's called the 7A program. And he he kind of said, well, I think you should talk to some folks. And so I found another lender. I had both um, Tony Wilkinson, who's the head of the association, and Barry Sloan, who runs uh, New Tech Financial on the show. They talked about what they were doing. They have much closer ties to small business. That's their bread and butter is serving small business. And I was able to get a application in with Barry's company, but the money ran out before my application was through. And I'm still kind of going through that process in the hopes that if they you know, do in fact pass this uh, next tranche of funding for small businesses that maybe I can be in line. And I'm not alone here, Bob. Like 1.7 million small businesses who are funded, and there are 30 million small businesses in America. So what, one in 20 basically got the golden ticket from the Willy Wonka chocolate factory, right? And so 
it shouldn't be this hard is my point. And I saw a stat the other day where only 4% of the loans that were made were over a million dollars or more. That accounted for 45% of the funding. So 45% of that $360 billion went to 4% of the businesses. So that right there is a red flag to me that they're not serving kind of small businesses. And we've seen that coverage start to percolate in the last week where it's been, well, Ruth Chris Steakhouse got $10 million and Shake Shack got $10 million, but then gave it back because of the blowback. So, you know, here's hoping that in this next tranche, you know, other smaller businesses will be able to get loans. But now they're talking about the last, you know, the last uh, $360 billion ran out in two weeks. They're talking that this next $310 billion could be gone in a couple of days, Bob. So we have a situation where the American government is trying to pay people to stay home. And the question is, how much does that take before we see complete economic collapse? It's scary stuff. And when you're in charge of a payroll and keeping the lights on, it's, um, you know, it's tough, man. It's really, really tough. So has it changed your attitude towards staying home? I mean, are you beginning to feel like, hey, maybe Georgia and Tennessee have it right. Maybe we need to kind of test the waters here and kind of see what happens if we open up a little bit. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I am 100% with and behind and listening to the scientists on this. And the science tells us uh, that if we go back too early, we risk having to go through this all over again that we are starting to see the curve flatten, but we need to continue to stay home. Uh, Here where I live in Washington, D.C., we have a stay-at-home order through May 15th. Uh, The mayor here is following the science on this. Uh, School is not going to go back into session here in Washington as it's not in multiple school districts throughout the country. And I think we need to be very, very careful, Bob. Yes, it is hurting, but I am actually in the majority in this view. If you see the polling uh, out there this week, uh, multiple polls showing that people believe that we should continue to stay home. In fact, some polling show that they believe we should stay home as long as necessary, even with the economic pain and dislocation that we're seeing. So Americans, you know, we're, I think there's a moment for unity here, Bob. I think, you know, we are coming together across our divides by and large, and we are sacrificing as is necessary. And we're all doing what we can. There's millions and millions of people who are essential workers, whether they're healthcare workers, grocery store workers, uh, supply chain workers who are risking their health every day to go out there and keep the bare minimum going. I think you know the rest of us are sacrificing our small businesses for our jobs and we're staying home. And this is not the suffering Olympics. You know, nobody's going to get the gold. Everybody is hurting in some way. And that is bringing us together. And I am heartened to see that a majority of our fellow Americans believe we need to follow the science on this so that we see fewer deaths. Because, yes, uh, it is horrible to see more than 20 million people out of work in just three weeks. It's unprecedented. But it's even worse to see more than 40,000 of our countrymen have died. And you can't work if you're dead. And so when I see these folks who are saying, well, let me go back, well, I, I just don't see how that trade-off works, even as a small business myself, who is very, very worried about being able to pay the bills. 
is it possible though to maintain a unified moment or to to be able to extend the unified moment when and let's take it back to the beginning of the conversation the man in the country with the biggest microphone and the biggest uh, bully pulpit that we have is undercutting that unity right he works every day to undercut his own administration's recommendations as far as uh, CDC guidelines of social distancing and uh, and stay-at-home orders is it possible to, to remain unified with Donald Trump as our president well, certainly an election year makes that much, much harder. And there are those out there. I saw uh, Douglas Brinkley was talking to Ben White uh, the other day who made the point that he thinks this could deepen our divisions because we're seeing kind of a political split. But man, I have to be hopeful that that political split and those agitators, those, those folks who are taking their kids to state capitals to protest stay-at-home orders they are the fringe, right? They're being organized by the same kind of far-right groups. Uh, we're seeing you know, some gun rights organizations fomenting these protests. You're seeing Freedom Works, which is a Washington, D.C.-based conservative organization. It used to be run by former House Majority Leader Dick Armey. They're the same group that created the Tea Party. They're now organizing these kind of protests against stay-at-home. But man, th- that's the that seems to me to be a very vocal minority that's getting coverage and what they're doing is dangerous. And we've had always in America, a conversation over individual rights versus the public good. That's what the gun debates about. That's what public health is about. That's what so many of these things are about. Do do we all need to carry insurance or is it my right to say, no, I don't need to. Um, Even though if we don't all have it, you know, that affects us all. Same with the rights to buy you know, certain kinds of guns. We're seeing that play out in real time now with life and death choices. And it seems to me those who want to go protest that they shouldn't have to stay at home are putting themselves and everybody else in danger. And do, do we accept that? Is that part of what it means to be an American and individual liberty? Or are we coming into a time where we understand that we do need to work together. More than seventy percent of our populations live together in cities, so that is where most of us are living, working, and that that close proximity means that sometimes we have to give up some of our individual privileges and rights for the collective good. And that's the that's what we're seeing play out, kind of writ large, when we watch this struggle about the stay at home. But to me, it's it's clear cut. You got to follow the science. And this is not a thing that you mess around with. Yes, do I wish that I could go visit my mom and dad and take my son and we could have celebrated his first birthday as a family together? Yes, I do. I do wish we could have done that. It was an important special milestone that we had to do on FaceTime. But you know what? That is part of my responsibility to make sure that we keep everybody here safe. And so I hope that we will continue to follow the science. I hope uh, that most Americans will continue uh, to to listen and trust uh, our public health officials, led by the wonderful Anthony Fauci, who I've had on my show over the years, who is an expert, who's fantastic. You know, when you look at his approval ratings, are somewhere in seventy percent. Uh, when you look at trust in our president, it's below fifty percent. I think there's a reason for that, Bob. Okay, Chris, you've been so generous with your time. 
and I don't want this to end. And in fact, I want to order some guacamole and chips, and I want you and I to be here having margaritas, enjoying this moment. But that is for the future. But for right now, in 60 seconds, you are the producer of Wolf Blitzer's 6 p.m. hour at CNN. Do you cover the president's nightly press conference? I think you cover it. I don't know that you're required to cover it live at this point. I think that news is always about making choices, about what's newsworthy, about what's true. And part of being a journalist is filtering that. That is the job. And there are plenty of places for uh, Americans to watch that live. I, I don't think I would turn over my airways for two hours to an unmitigated stream of information and facts mixed with disinformation and, uh, and untruths. And so I would cover it. I would monitor it. I would clip the things that are important. And I would make sure that Americans hear the facts. And I would make sure that Americans knew what wasn't factual, but it's very difficult to do that in real time when you're covering a press conference live. So at this point, I think it's a tough call because he is the president of the United States and we are in a global pandemic, but there is so much disinformation coming out that could be harmful that I think you really do have to vet the, unfortunately, you have to vet our president and make sure that he's telling the truth. And that's a sad state of affairs, but that's where we are. And I think as a public service, you have to be careful about uh, taking these things live. And if you do, you need to be constantly using those chirons on the screen to correct what the president's saying. Uh, you know, president said X, Y is true. Um, and, and to amplify the things that are true and to make sure that people know, yes, this is backed up by the science. So it's a really tough call. But I think at this point, the president is treating these uh, press briefings more as campaign rallies than he is as public health briefings. And so as a news director, I think you are in the right to also cover them as if they were part campaign, part public health. Chris, man, thanks so much for doing this. My heart and love goes out to you and your family, and I hope things get worked out with uh, getting that business loan, and we'll be looking for uh, some more material coming out from Storyline sometime soon. Absolutely, man. This is always a pleasure. Bob, I'm, I'm happy to come back anytime. I always love talking with you, and uh, your family is in our thoughts. Uh, sending much love to you guys and to all your listeners. Take care of yourself and each other out there. Thanks. Langhorn Slim, welcome to the Politics of Truth. Hey, Bobby. We go way back. We sure do. You don't look a day older. Uh, well, you know, I feel older. And I've been feeling older these past couple weeks, this past month. But you know what's made me feel younger inside and it's given me great comfort is to watch your videos that you've been uh, shooting with Cracker Farm. Thank you, Bob. That's a huge takeaway, a blessing, a gift from all of this is to have Cracker down the street. I am full on in isolation mode. You know, the whole thing is just the, the word surreal gets thrown around a lot these days. And there's a good reason that it does get thrown around. You know, so many different feelings and, and emotions uh, go through one's, one's life regardless. And, and here, you know, actually when I saw you guys in the Dominican Republic, That's obviously. Right. Just two weeks before all this probably for you too, in, in, in our line of living. Time has never made much sense to me, certainly not the way that we're taught time works. 
I've never, uh, I've never felt it really in that kind of way. But yeah, time recently has been so crazy. We were, we were out there with you guys, which was, which was a blast and also a kind of bizarre construct of a reality, you know, to be at that Dominican Republic in that environment. It's its own, like beautiful, obviously, and strange kind of five days or a week of, of living in, in that way, you know? And then that night I flew back, fell asleep, was, was exhausted, fell asleep, woke up at uh, seven or eight in the morning with a bunch of texts on my phone. Are you okay? And I was like, man, I don't even, I don't drink or anything anymore. What, what did I get into? <laughs> and, and why don't I remember it? And why don't I remember it? I was like, yeah, I feel good. The shows went well. It was great to see my friends. And I slept through that tornado. Wow. And that the, the tornado hit, my street was almost untouched. The streets next to it were, were decimated. And then, of course, you know, just the, the wildness of that, trying to process that and, and, and feel all that out. I think two weeks, three weeks later, it wasn't even time for people, I don't think, to really completely process that situation. I'm certain of it. And yes. then all of a sudden, we're, we're in a global pandemic. Uh, I don't know how all of a sudden, but all of a sudden we're all, you know, we were all feeling it. I, my opinion, we probably should have been more aware and, and feeling it a little sooner, but. Um, so did you have any idea that the pandemic was on the horizon when we were in the Dominican Republic? Only because I was, I don't have, t well, I just bought a TV during this, uh, the quarantine, my first television that I bought in over 10 years. And we don't, I don't have cable on it. We watch, uh, you know, Netflix and all that. I was watching the news in the hotel at the resort and I was hearing about it, but it's a sort of a phenomenon or, or, or something that we all experience where you could hear that a, a tornado hit Nashville. Even, you know, for me, it was, it was down the street. Like I still have to walk down the street so I could remind my, my mind and my emotions that this thing has just happened. I don't want to not think that it just happened, you know? Yeah. Just to set this up for the listeners, you know, a week before all this pandemic situation became a reality for us. Nashville, Tennessee was hit by a devastating tornado that killed, I don't know, Langhorn, do you know how many people passed away? Two people were killed in, in East Nashville. I don't know the, the, the figure of how many folks. It's, it's unbelievable to me that it wasn't more people, not to diminish, obviously, the, the lives that did get taken by it. But just to see the devastation, I've never, the, the closest thing I could sort of compare it to is what I saw, and I didn't live in New Orleans, but the, the trips that I spent down there, the time I spent not too, too long after, um, after Katrina, which is totally a different situation. But I just never seen uh, shit get ripped apart in, in a city like that, you know? The day after I got back from Dominican Republic, we were taking Hallie to St. Jude. So that was the day after the tornado. On Tuesday, we drove from home, North Carolina, to Knoxville. We stayed overnight. Wednesday morning, we got up and we drove through Nashville on our way to Memphis to St. Jude. And from Highway 40 at Mount Juliet, which is just before the city uh, of Nashville, I remember the first thing I saw was pieces of a gas station sign. And then about three miles later, I saw the gas station. There was an Under Armour warehouse. The front of it looked normal, completely fine. The back of it was ripped off. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. My, the first thing that I saw when I woke up that morning, you know, I got out of my bedroom and, and went out and, and looked outside and there was just in a this giant piece of industrial metal that I couldn't even recognize what that was. And it was just stuck in my front lawn. You know, I learned pretty quickly that that had, uh, 
for people that aren't familiar with Nashville or East Nashville, it was uh, five points that got hit really bad. And that's sort of where a lot of the bars and the, and the venues and restaurants and stuff are, which I think is maybe a, two miles from my house. It had blown from a roof, just this enormous piece of metal that must have come off of one of the roofs just flew all the way over here and landed in my front yard. And then a week later, I remember talking to Ben Sawyer, who lives very close to you. He's the co-host of Road to Now podcast. We do a history podcast together. And it was a Sunday night. And that's when we record our, our introductions for our shows. And I had seen news reports that people were at bars and clubs in Nashville still partying. North Carolina was beginning to shut down. I'm like, Ben, what, you know, you know about this COVID, this, this uh, virus that's hitting the country. We're, we're shutting down the whole country. We're canceling a bunch of shows. And he, he knew about it, I guess, but you guys, he was helping people repair their houses. Like you guys were just in the thick of the tornado damage. This whole virus, this pandemic snuck up on you. Yeah. I mean, for sure, in a sense. And it's just one of the endless layers of bizarreness, uh, you know, everything that was going on in Nashville, which was to go out, to be together, to, you know, get a chainsaw. You know, I was out with my, I, I don't wield chainsaws uh, too well. So uh, my cracker had the chainsaw and uh, went out with him just, try, you know, just going down the street, trying to help. But aren't you from Bucks County? I'm You're from not, Bucks County, baby. Then you but, don't wield a, t- a chainsaw? You're from Bucks County? I learned very young that I better wield a guitar. <laughs> a different kind of axe. Well done, Bob. But yeah, I mean, th- th- there still is construction going on. There, there still is efforts. But I mean, so much of what was going on, then two weeks later, that all obviously had to stop. And just to answer your question, I definitely got a sense before Nashville or some of these cities were starting to shut down that this was... Um, I deal with this a lot in my life where it's like, what is my instinct and what is like my, my fear? And what's conditioned fear and what's kind of like the animal gut instinct? which we all sort of want to trust that animal instinct. And a lot of us don't want to live in fear. I don't know what that's about uh, energetically or whatever, but um, yeah, like my friend who came here, I, I, I was like, you know, I, I don't think your job is going to be open in a week. I don't think anything's going to be open in a week. I stopped going out, you know, kind of a week or so before it was, uh, they're telling you to do it. Of course, we probably all have our own ideas as to why it's been done in these increments, why it was done. I realize some people don't feel like it was done slowly at all. I would certainly disagree with that. The scale of these things is beyond my understanding. I don't know what it's like to, uh, you know, we're, we're politicians of, of music and hopefully of love. And that's, that's a worthy, uh, you know, sometimes in these last years, I've, I've questioned that. Is that enough? You know, is this just ridiculous to to drive around from town to town and, and have people, you know, clap at your songs. And, you know, what does it all mean? I still kind of go back and forth with that at times, but it's like, that's what I, that's the closest to a higher calling that I, that I, that's the closest that I've found. And so just trying to do that, that's the best that I know how to do in this moment. When I do look at uh, what's going on in this country and in other places, it, it, it does boggle my mind. It breaks my heart. And to, you know, they're starting to reopen things now. I, I don't know what it's like to try to keep an economy going. I know that um, for us, tours get canceled. Thank goodness the shows that I have, I'm not, I wasn't relying on those shows to, to pay my mortgage this month. There are a lot of people that are to pay their rent. Yeah. So I I get it on that on that level. I just think every so much of what is done is done 
under a lie and therefore creates this um, this kind of infighting and, and chaos within this country that uh, that that I wish people could sort of figure out that maybe a lot of these folks don't have our best interests in mind and and try to I don't know follow the truths that we have inside. Obviously, that's very subjective. Everybody has, has a different truth inside. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, that that's a bit vague and esoteric, I guess. But uh, I mean, for years I've felt this way. It's not just a Donald Trump thing. It's not just a global pandemic thing. It's really what feeds me so that I can be equipped for this experience, this life, this day, this moment. And as you know, I've we all do, but I've struggled with that throughout my life and turn to other things to medicate the, the, uh, I think there's a underlying feeling that I've always had that this construct of reality of society that we live in is based on a lot of artificial bullshit and it doesn't sit well with me, but it's like, what do you do with that? And thank yeah. God I've got music in my life. Do you want to talk about sobriety? Yeah, no, sure. You know, okay. And we all do something to medicate ourselves, right? And I can't speak for us all. I sure as shit know that I have. I would, I would, uh, if I were forced to say, yeah, sure. We, I would say we all do. Yeah. You recorded a song last week about panic attacks. Yeah. And I can identify with that. I have uh, long suffered uh, different versions of panic attacks and hypochondria and all these things. And so when I saw and heard your panic attack song, I was like, yes. I was like, it is so comforting to hear what's in your head come from another person. And that's why people love music and great songwriting, which you've written so many great songs. So talk about sobriety for a minute and, and, and um, how it's changed uh, and influenced your coping right now. I'm glad you heard that tune and, and connected with it. That was just another reminder and a needed reminder for me because I felt pretty silly writing it, honestly. And I did that under my therapist's uh, suggestion um, that she had made to me when I was talking to her about this, this fear, this anxiety, whatever you want to call it, that, that I experienced. I'm trying, you know, trying to do the right things for myself and sobriety. And, and it's a bit of a foolish notion that, well, I'm doing, and probably very much like an alcoholic addict kind of um, idea, like I'm doing these things so why do I still experience pain? Why do I still experience any discomfort? And then for me, I'll get mad at myself for feeling those feelings. Who the fuck am I to feel anxiety? The street next to my street just got ripped to pieces. You know, today people are dying and hot, you know. But my grandfather told me many years ago, because I've had this, uh, this in my head for a long time, and I came home from school and I got in trouble or whatever. I was going through something and I was like, I just feel all this shit. But then I get mad at myself because I feel all this shit because I know that there's children starving. And he's like, yeah, you know, that's good to keep in mind. And, and don't let don't let your own thing, you know, swallow you entirely. But every everybody's pain does feel the same to, to them. And that's worth something. So I don't know. I, I, I tried to write that because she, she had suggested when I hadn't written music, for, uh, hadn't finished a song in a long time, felt like a lot longer than than I could ever remember. And that was causing me anxiety and that was causing me fear. And I don't know if you could relate to this or not, but you know, where music is absolutely the greatest gift that I have in, in this life and has saved my life so many times, it could turn into the creature for me. It could turn into maybe I just project my, my bullshit onto it or whatever, but I could look at my guitar at times and, and be scared of that guitar. I could, lean, I could go to, my, to an instrument to try to soothe myself 
and I don't get that relief like I would with a drug or alcohol, you know, because I think the anxiety can be projected onto the things that that I love the most. It can become part of the the problem. I don't know how to articulate that exactly. Yeah, it, it, it sounds like you're kind of saying that it doesn't matter if you play music or write songs and, and if that can be it sometimes be soothing and and productive for you. But but the fear well, it doesn't it, get rid of it. That's for sure. What it has done for me, I think, is going back to me for 39 years being confused about what is going on out there. <laughs> Why do we live this way? Why do we go to these schools when we're kids? And then, you know, the, the idea is then to find a, a good enough job to make ends meet and put some money away and then, you know, go to Arizona or um, you go to like Florida and, and play golf until you die. That never appealed to me. And I'm not, you know, angry about that um, all the time, but I, I am confused about it. So art and music was the first thing and continues to be the thing that allows me to enter another reality, though I don't understand that reality either, but it makes more sense to me. It feels more real to me. I appreciate the mystery of it, um, where I don't believe that we know what the fuck is going on in this world. And this idea, which is why I dislike some of these politicians. I distrust people who claim that they have all the answers. Those are the people that in my life and my experience, when I've talked to or known, those are the people that I'm the most wary of. Since I'm a kid, I always connected with, I like to say underdogs, but to the artists, to the musicians, to the gay kids, to the freaks, you know, uh, to the to the punk rock kids, to, to people who I guess are sort of marginalized by this idea of a world that we're supposed to live in that I just don't buy into. So in 2016, you talk about the underdogs. Do you played for Bernie Sanders? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I continued to up until, in fact, I submitted a video from home a few days before he dropped out. I knew that that was coming. The night before John Prine passed away, mm -hmm. that was very difficult for all of us. Um, I'm forever an optimist, but a pessimistic optimist, I think. I, I always can remember that there is that there is some hope, that there is light. But in times that do feel overwhelmingly dark, to lose these um, these sources of of light, of love, of incredible music, it's over. It's overwhelming. We'll put it that way. So, did you ever meet Gene Shea? Gene Shea? Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. Because he passed. He passed away Sunday. I didn't know that. Yeah, I think it was the virus. Dean Shea was, I think, the very first person to ever, one of the very first people to ever kind of believe in me was this woman, Hollis, in Philadelphia. There was a club called the Tin Angel. Oh, yeah. I remember it well. Yeah. And so I used to go there and drink harp beer with Kurt Vile. He was always sitting at the bar. And um, I'm not trying to, like, name drop. It's just a little bit. No, 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 no. Yeah, it's set the scene. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a hell, it was like one of the, I've lived through, I know you have as well, you're part of that for me, lived through a few of these times where I thought to myself, this shit, there's something happening here, and someday some people are going to, are going to talk about this, some of these musicians are going to be, um, are going to be loved by a lot of people, but that was just in the beginning for, for us and this woman, Hollis, uh, I don't know how old I was, 20, 19, she would, she was managing the Tin Angel, 
She would get me gigs opening up for Amos, various people that were playing, and then got one of my songs. I think it might have been like one of my first songs when I started writing more like folky kind of. I was trying to play like Doc Watson, which is impossible, at least for me. Uh, but this song, Counting Fireflies, sent it to Gene Shea at XPN. And I'm pretty sure he was the first person to ever play me on the radio. That That is that is Gene Shea, right? He's the guy who, he brought Dylan to Philly, but he always had his ear out and always knew, he knew what folk was. Folk wasn't this Kingston Trio box. Folk music didn't stop at 1972 for Gene Shea. It was always pushing the envelope, pushing the envelope. And, so, and as an older guy, for him to, st- you know, that's sort of few and far between, particularly on, on radio, for fucking sure, for somebody to continue to to have an ear and an open heart to uh, newcomers. It's pretty awesome. There's enough folk music. He could play. He could have played the, his shows for the rest of his life without without um, giving exposure to to young bucks. We played Sellersville theater one night it was a sunday night and we got the word gene shea wants you to come by the studio after the show and it was so exciting you know he he was this is back at the i'm beginning. sad to hear that bob i i didn't know that he had passed away it's funny my my father passed away like right before uh dominican republic you know they talk about deaths in threes have you ever heard that sure well it's been this it's been this kind of um it's been more than three it's uh, been more than three yeah yeah so you mentioned your grandfather I know how much he meant to you. We want to talk about him for a second? Sure. I mean, all of my grandparents, my grandpa Sid and I definitely had a particular kind of connection. But my parents split up when I was, I think, two years old. And we were just incredibly lucky, my brother and I, that I don't think my parents were super psyched on each other, but my grandparents didn't. We wouldn't have known that really. Well, you might have known it a little bit, but not, not through our grandparents. Um, if there were sides taken and things like that that kind of energy wasn't put on to us. And our grandparents all just came came together around my brother and I, and we're just huge figures in our lives. So I've always just connected. When I was little, I just liked old people. And I think that that's because of either some past life thing or because of my grandparents. Um, I just felt more connected with 85-year-old Jewish guys uh, <laughs> in Philadelphia and in New Jersey and in, Fla- and in Florida. Um, <laughs> And I used to say to Sydney, you know, I would say like, what, what the hell am I going to do when you go? Like, why does my best friend got to be, uh, be so old? But yeah, he had a massive stroke. He'd been sick a bunch. He had a massive stroke, uh, when I was pretty young and they thought he was going to die a number of times. And as I say on stage, cause I have a song song for Sid, I've got a song for my other grandparents. They were from that generation where they were just tough old sons of bitches but they were also just incredibly sweet. But, um, you know, I hadn't, and I don't think most people have heard of Zoom before uh, the global pandemic. And, um, you know, I've gotten to spend, had these four hour cousin talks uh, with all my cousins and, and getting to do this with you. Um, honestly, the idea of getting on my computer and looking at a friend and talking wouldn't have really appealed to me uh, about a month ago. And um, and now it, it's um, it's a highlight of of the day. So great to see you. It is so powerful. It is so powerful. And, and you're right. It, why would I need to get on Zoom and talk to uh, Langhorn or you know an old friend or this? And We're proving that we need each other. And wait till the hugs come back. Slim, I love you, man. Be good. Be safe. Be healthy. I'll talk to you soon. 
Talk to you soon, brother. Love you. Love you. I called a healthcare professional. Want to speak to someone confidentially. Don't know just how I'm feeling. But I'm feeling feelings exponentially. Convoy started asking questions. Said, ma'am, I was hoping for advice. I'm feeling lots of feelings. Not a single one of them feels nice. On a scale of 1 to 10, do you feel anxious? On a scale of 1 to 10, do you feel scared? Said I'm feeling lots of feelings. For some reason, I cut my hair. Sometimes my skin starts crawling. Sometimes the creature's calling. Sometimes the walls start caving in. Sometimes I feel isolated. Sometimes I feel so small. Sometimes I get irritated. Right now I feel it all. She spoke and I tried to listen. Said son, there may be no cure. But I swear that life's worth living. It's the only thing worth living for. To my friends in the same condition, I wish there was a cure. And I swear that life's worth living. It's the only thing worth living for. Politics of Truth is brought to you by Osiris Media. Produced by Bob Crawford and Adam Kaplan. Our executive producer is RJB. The program was mixed and mastered by Brad Stratton. Artwork by Mark Dowd. For other great podcasts that connect you to the artists and music you love, please visit OsirisPod.com. I called a healthcare professional, want to speak to someone confidentially, don't know just how I'm feeling, but I'm feeling feelings exponentially. Exponentially.